investing is all about survival, that you don't want to have a scenario where you could lose it all because uh, there's no more game to play. And I think I've been noticing all kinds of phenomena in investing. And your book gave me a framework, a vocabulary to organize my thoughts and explain it. People tell you like to optimize for a certain time horizon, usually like to plan for retirement, mm -hmm. but you don't even know whether you will reach retirement. There is an uncertainty on the time horizon. So which time horizon do you optimize for? And my personal answer is that you do not try to optimize, but rather you try to live a life in a way that whether you die in one month, 10 years, or when you are 90 years old, you are still happy in all of these scenarios. Mm. And uh, this is very relevant to ergodicity because ergodicity is basically the study of how time horizons influence mm -hmm. the goodness of a strategy. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're tuning into my podcast. For your convenience, the show is available on a multitude of platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, and many more. If you want to keep up with all new episodes, and there's so many more in the queue, make sure you subscribe and please do share it with friends and family. Review it and rate it if you can. Every little gesture matters, and I thank you for it. If you'd like to know more about me or if you're interested in getting in touch, simply Google my name and it will lead you straight to my website. There's a contact form there or check notes to this episode for links. I love hearing how you listen to my podcast on your walks, hikes, alone times, drives, trips, and more. I trust that my guests and I are a wonderful company on those adventures. I also enjoy reading how some of you are rehearsing and answering some questions that I ask my guests. I love hearing that. If you're new to the show, please scroll down and check out all the amazing guests I've had over the last few months. If you are serious about investing, money wisdom, wealth, and living a better life, you'll find plenty of episodes with some incredible ideas. For those who enjoy reading thoughtful pieces, I regularly write articles on Substack, which I'm sure you'd find insightful. Find me there and follow me as well. Finally, I'd like to mention my latest book, Crisis Investing. It's a collection of 100 essays that I penned for our clients during the tumultuous times of the global COVID pandemic. These essays are both timely and timeless, providing a unique perspective on navigating through crises. They were never meant to be published, but here they are available to you. Please find the book on Amazon. The book has already received considerable recognition and much love, ranking among the top releases on Amazon in its initial weeks. Thank you for your support and for being a part of my listener community. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. My guest today is Luca Delana. 
He is a management advisor focused on increasing revenue through better people and operations management. After a master's degree in automotive engineering, Lucas spent the first part of his career working for DuPont's consulting unit in Frankfurt, Germany. There, he focused on managerial excellence projects in a variety of manufacturing industries all across Europe. In 2015, Luca moved back to his hometown of Turin, Italy, and opened a private consulting practice serving clients worldwide. He has also published books about management, human behavior, and economics that earn him appearances on the most important conference and podcasts in his field, Notch Stock and Econ Talk, respectively. Luca lives with his wife, Wen Lin, and his dog, Didi, and divides his time between Turin and Singapore. Today, we talk about Luca's childhood and upbringing. Luca shared his perspective on how the understanding of time and variance can improve our decision-making processes, particularly in the context of long-term relationships. We discussed how his book is designed to help readers make better decisions that don't ignore time but leverage it. Luca elaborated on the idea of decisions that minimize regret and maximize long-term potential. He talked about the concept of survival in both skiing and life in general. We delve into the world of investing, where Luca further advised that over a prolonged period of time, survival dwarfs performance. Luca shared his powerful concept about how irreversible consequences absorb future gains and how we often play Russian roulette in life, risking more than we realize. We talked about the statement, do not envy successes that don't reproduce well. Luca shared more about why envy is often misguided and how we should focus on repeatable successes. Luca discussed his perspective that individuals should care about whether a system works for them rather than if it works on average. Luca explained the difference between ergodic and non-ergodic systems in terms of their outcomes. He recommended investing time and money as a barbell to balance risk and reward. We discussed the idea that extreme risks can outperform skill in general, taking small risks is a good strategy. Luca shared his advice on performance measurement. We discussed how ergodicity can be introduced into life and where non-ergodicity might be positive. Luca talked about the difference between efficiency and effectiveness. He shared his belief that to achieve sustained performance, it is necessary to measure leading indicators. Finally, we discussed how Luca's research has shaped his view of success. Please help me welcome Luca Delana. Well, hello, Luca. It's nice to see you. How are you? Thank you for inviting me, Boromir. So I'm a big fan of your book, Ergodicity. And uh, I know that you wrote many more books that I'll be reading in the near future. And I was introduced to your ideas by Guy Spear, who was a guest on my podcast. And we were talking about infinite games and how investing is all about survival, that you don't want to have a scenario where you could lose it all because uh, there's no more game to play. And I think I've been noticing all kinds of phenomena in investing and your book gave me a framework, a vocabulary to organize my thoughts and explain it. So I appreciate your book. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for reading it. I like to start those conversations from the beginning and I, I like to ask my guests about their childhood and upbringing and how that time you think influenced your interest, your curiosity. And we'll get into ergodicity in a minute, but if you can uh, get us up to speed on Luca's life from those early days to where you are today writing amazing books. There have been two life experiences which got me thinking about uh, ergodicity. First one was the death of my father, father when I was a teenager. And the second one was when I was diagnosed with uh, eye cancer a few years ago. Now, thankfully, I'm fine, got treated very early. 
But both experiences taught me that life can be fleeting. And in particular, that people tell you like to optimize for a certain time horizon, usually like to plan for mm -hmm. retirement, but you don't even know whether you will reach retirement. There is an uncertainty on the time horizon. So which time horizon do you optimize for? And my personal answer is that you do not try to optimize, but rather you try to live a life in a way that whether you die in one month, 10 years, or when you are 90 years old, you are still happy in all of these scenarios. Mm. And uh, this is very relevant to ergodicity because ergodicity is basically the study of how time horizons influence mm -hmm. the goodness of a strategy. Love it. And we'll get into the details of what it means. But in the beginning of your book, you have a quote about marriage. And I thought of it was really interesting. You say, whether to marry our romantic partner is influenced by how long we believe our love will last. And you share how you can improve your outcomes by understanding what you just mentioned, which is the effect of time and the variance on our choices. Can you tell us more? I thought it was a very interesting way of looking at one of the biggest decisions in our lives. Who do we, who do we marry? Yes, so basically marriage is a long-time commitment. And uh, it's very much influenced by whether we think that With this person, we have uh, a relationship which is not likely to last longer or whether it's likely to last longer because you don't want to get into a marriage with a person that you think that the relationship will last uh, short. But it also works the other way around. And this mm -hmm. is uh, really the core of the ideas I discussed. It's that because marriage has implicitly a longer time horizon, It influences the small decisions that you make in your life. For mm. example, if you have an argument with a person that you know you will have a long relationship with, right. you will behave differently in the argument than with a person that you think that you will only have um, a small time horizon with. Because if you have a long time horizon, you will be much more uh, willing to understand, to try to find some win-win, Uh, to work collaboratively and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the benefits of the institution of marriage is that changes not just certain behaviors to be more constructive. I noticed the same thing when I was 18 years old. I didn't know whether I would still live in my hometown or whether I would live to, to another town to maybe another country or another continent. And I was really not interested in uh, the relation, in the local relationship, in the local politics, or in whether they would uh, improve the votes in my town because I thought anywhere I would live. Now instead, right. 15 years later, and I think that I would live here a long time, everything mm -hmm. changes. I'm much more influenced to, to do things which are constructive for my local. So this is another, another way in which your behavior influences your time horizon. And the other way mm -hmm. around, the time horizon that you give to yourself and to others, can cause them to have more constructive or less constructive behaviors. I'm immediately thinking of the stock market, buyers and sellers that come and buy shares. And you never know who you're buying from. It's a, not the market in the, in the old way where you would know the buyer. It's very anonymous in that sense. And somebody might come in with a one-day time horizon. They want to just uh, flip the stock in a day. And somebody might be buying for an endowment and hold it maybe indefinitely. 
and they have a very different time horizon, very different expectation. And somebody that holds a share for a day probably looks at different data points than somebody that wants to hold it for a lifetime. So I immediately see how that influences our decisions in investing, but in life as well. There's another beautiful quote that you have in the book that I really liked. You said, reading this book will help you take better decisions, decisions that don't ignore time but leverage it, decisions that minimize regret yet maximize long-term potential. Can you tell me more? Yes. So again, time has such a big importance in decisions because the decision that is best, for example, to make the most money in one year is very different from the strategy that's the best to make the most money in a decade, which again is very different from the strategy which is, uh, which allows you to make the most money in uh, a career. Mm -hmm. And this is something that usually people grasp. But what's harder to grasp is the idea that if a decision has a certain average yearly return over a time horizon, we think that that average return applies whether well, applies for other different time horizons. For example, we right. think, oh, if there is this, um, this strategy that uh, yields, uh, I don't know, 5% per year over a 10 years time horizon, then mm-hmm. it also means that it will leave five, it will, uh, give me 5% uh, per year over five years and right. the same over 20 years. And that's mm-hmm. false. Mm-hmm. Every time that there is the chance of some game over, of some irreversibility, uh, we see that this uh, reasoning doesn't apply. So we need to consider time and we need to use time as one of the main criteria for, for our decision, the time horizon. And then I mm-hmm. talk about regret, maximizing, mm-hmm. uh, minimizing regret and maximizing potential. And usually we think that those two, they come at a trade-off. Like sometimes you right. think like, oh, I need to take more conservative choices to minimize my, uh, my regrets in case something goes wrong. But it mm-hmm. goes at the expense of uh, potential gain. And in the book, I show that very often this is not true. I mean, of course, there is some level of risk avoidance where you really try to avoid all risks in which, of course, you compromise your potential. But within certain measure, going a bit conservative and uh, minimizing your regrets also maximizes your potential. And if you think that that's not true, it's usually because you're looking at people who got very lucky with a strategy, mm-hmm. and it looks like because they got lucky, like they had very high potential, and it looks like that high potential is the benchmark. But it's not the benchmark, it's that they got lucky. And a and lot of investing is about ignoring, like not fixing the benchmark on people who got lucky, but fixing mm-hmm. the benchmark across the world strategy, the winners and the losers. I think you're touching on something really interesting. And before we go ahead, I wanted to pause for a second because when I was at Buffett's meeting in Omaha, I was thinking, you know, Buffett with whatever it is these days, 100 billion and Munger with 40 times less or so. And they're both comfortable financially, right? Although they're, they're not on this, at the same level. And then I was looking around the room, anybody that has been a shareholder of Berkshire for a substantial time, they're probably also financially comfortable. The, the range of outcomes, outcomes is very, very wide from single millions to tens of millions to a few hundred billion. But I think the fascinating thing is that you don't have to become the next Buffett as long as you're applying the same principles and you end up somewhere on the range and even in this room at the annual meeting, you probably are financially comfortable. 
And I think that's where you're going with the with this philosophy that you don't have to be, you know, the lottery winner, somebody that really got everything right. You can still do it just fine as long as you don't have any experience that I call an absolute zero, right? A total loss, irreversible loss, which leads me to the second question here. You talk about the skier, and I'll let you share the story. And I think Guy Spear really related to skiing. He loves skiing. I used to ski a lot. Now I surf, and I can relate to the same idea when, when you surf. You, you can do very well day after day after day, but if you have one day when you hurt yourself, you're out of the water for weeks. And I'll let you share the story, but I think it really presents the idea of not having a, a situation that would derail you from whatever pursuit you have, whether it's a competition or life in general. I'll let you tell the story. <laughs> yeah, in the book, I tell the story of my cousin who was born in a mountain town in France, very good skier, uh, started skiing super early, six years old. He was already a better skier than me now at 35. Uh, Starts, uh, uh, makes it to the world championships for his age bracket. Extremely good. Then he starts having one injury, another injury, mm -hmm. and suddenly he had to stop, uh, uh, co competitions, uh, even before he turned uh, 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And from him, I learned the lesson that the skier will win the race, not mm -hmm. the fastest skier, but it's the skier the fastest skier between those who finish the race. Right. And from that point, I show that uh, performance is subordinate to survival. Mm -hmm. Now, usually people, when they hear this story, they understand the point that survival matters for performance. Right. But they think, is it really true that survival is even more important than performance? And so I make a second example, this time with some numbers. Mm -hmm. And the, the example is as follows. Imagine that there is a, uh, a championship of 10 races and by causing very good skier, he has a 20% chance of winning each race. But he also right. has a 20% chance of uh, breaking his leg because he takes a lot of mm. risks. And my question is, what's the expected number of wins uh, in the 10 races championship? The naive answer is two wins because you think there are 10 races 20% chance of winning each, 10 times 20% makes two. Right. However, if you run the numbers, you get a very different result. And the reason mm -hmm. is because in the first race, he has a 20% chance of breaking his leg. And right. if it happens, he cannot participate to the following races. It means that he so only right. has an 80% chance of participating to the second race. And therefore, mm -hmm. the expected wins from the second race is 80% times 20% makes 0.16. Mm -hmm. And then you, you can keep running the numbers. Each race, he has an even lower chance of winning, which translates in a uh, lower number of expected wins. And the grand total over 10 races is 0 0.71 uh, wins, which is way lower than the two wins that we uh, were expecting if we didn't mm -hmm. think about the fact that breaking the leg has irreversible consequences. And, uh, and you can see how over... The longer the time horizon co considered, the more mm -hmm. survival determines outcomes more than performance. And the emphasis is on the irreversible consequences in this. And it really makes you pause when you think about it, right? Because when we look at a competition, when you look at investing, obviously everybody's focused on winnings. Very little attention is spent on making it to the end, whatever that end would be, or not exiting the race at all. 
we manage uh, fortunes for families over generations. The goal is to see those fortunes last for many more generations. There is no real end. It, in a sense, it's an infinite game. There is no end to the process. The last thing we want to have one single year where we see a total or close to a total wipeout, right? That's that's how I think about it. That's why that example really resonated with me and with the kind of work I do because I think we focus so much attention on the return returns up seven, up nine, and up ten, outperformance by two, by five, whatever it is. If you have one single year when most of it is gone, the game is over. I, I find it really fascinating. And you just touched on it that over prolonged periods of time, the survival dwarfs performance you write in the book. Can you talk more about it? I think it's really fascinating because that's that sums it up really well, how staying in the game basically is the key. Yes, it's just that survival is so important for performance and they see it. Uh, I work with like doing consulting and uh, working for companies. I see so many talented people mm -hmm. who... And the main reason why they don't achieve their successes or happiness is a survival problem. And I mean it not just, for example, the investment goes bust, but I mean it also, for example, they go bankrupt or right. their marriage doesn't survive mm -hmm. or their reputation doesn't survive. Mm -hmm. Their health maybe doesn't survive. So I see that as a very broad problem, like when, when I'm talking about survival. And it's just so important because... Even just missing survival in any of those areas basically means mm -hmm. that you lose even if you would have otherwise won. And so, for example, one very, very useful um, exercise is when you try to optimize performances, first you try to think about how to optimize performance like in the, all the usual ways. And that right. what you do is that you ask yourself, imagine that perf like the performance of the thing that I'm doing goes well. But imagine that mm -hmm. despite that, For example, I lose my investment, or I'm not happy, or I still end up with nothing. And then you think, not how likely could it be, but you, but you ask yourself, what could have it caused it? And right. it's an excellent exercise to find some problems or risks that you have in your life. One thing I mm -hmm. ask myself, for example, is let's imagine that one day I wake up in the hospital, likely or unlikely. What's the reason that could have caused me to wake up there? Or another thing, let's imagine that one day I finally, uh, um, sorry, I even, uh, it happens that I lose my job or I lose my client. What could right. be the reason? Mm -hmm. And the, this kind of question is very, very useful to increase your, your survival and therefore to allow you to grab the results of the performance you would otherwise have had. And it's interesting that you mentioned it's a broader definition of survival, including the fact that You mentioned how working, being the hardest worker might not be the path, but the hardest worker that gets to show up day after day after day without a burnout. So the one that actually will be there. If you go through a burnout, and, and we see it more often these days than, than ever before, you're out of the game, maybe for good or for a while, and you're missing out on opportunities. The other point that you mentioned, thinking of, you know, you end up in a hospital or you end up in an undesirable situation. How could I have gotten there? And I'm thinking of Munger who says, uh, tell me where I will die and I will not go there. I think that's the <laughs> similar mindset. Tell me how I can get in trouble and I will not go there. And you might appreciate that, that my first conversation with my future boss and now business partner about investing as a kid in my 20s was not about how I can make money in investing, but for an hour, 
now looking back, I know that I, I asked all the hard questions, how can I lose money? And we talked about Enron and the dot-com bubble at the time. And I think he found it really refreshing that this young kid out of grad school is not asking about how I can get rich fast. But I first of all wanted to know, what has he learned in those decades of experience that got people in trouble and what I should not do? And I figured the upside, like the skier, as long as I keep showing up, I might be the only one in the race. <laughs> exactly. And uh, <laughs> that, that if, I, if I can just add one thing on this, like something that people very often miss is that average performance sustained mm -hmm. over a long time brings yeah. above average returns. Just because mm -hmm. there would be so many people that drop out or otherwise they have some, uh, some um, big setback. And a lot of times people say, I don't want to settle for average or for good enough. I want to be the best. But if you aim to be the best, it's much likely that you drop out at some point. And if instead you aim for good enough and you manage to maintain it, you will end up almost the best. And very often that's the strategy you want to have. Otherwise, you start to accept certain risks. And when I think of investing, I feel that there are certain risks that are not worth accepting. That's, that's the bottom line. And, and there are all kinds of measures of risk, and we can talk more about it, but there are certain risks that are just not worth taking, no matter how much money you have and no matter how much of a time horizon, how long of a time horizon you have, there are certain risks that can completely derail you. So speaking of that, you, you talk about a Russian roulette, and you can explain to the audience how the game goes. But what was, um, I think it's, it has a bit of a shock effect that we play Russian roulettes all the time in our life, not knowing. That was the one thing that I, I took away from your book. And we talked about irreversible consequences, but you also add to it, and you say that those irreversible consequences can absorb future gains. And it gives a lot more context to what those consequences are. It basically, you give up any future upside because you're out of the game. Can you talk about those Russian roulettes that we play with uh, friendship, marriage, work, all the way to investing, and how we can play that game better? Yeah, so first, just some background about the game of Russian roulette for those who don't know about it. Don't play it at home, because, of course. It's mm -hmm. basically the idea that someone takes a gun with um, mm -hmm. only puts one bullet, even though there are six chambers, randomly mm -hmm. spill, uh, randomly spins the barrel, and then so you don't know whether the bullet is going to shoot next. There is a one right. in six chance, and then uh, they put the gun towards their head, and they pull the trigger. One in six chance they die. Five in six chances they win some uh, prize money. And again, of mm -hmm. course, don't try it. But the point is. The question is, what's, uh, let's imagine that Russian roulette, you win $1,000. The question mm -hmm. is, what's the expected win of playing Russian roulette? And a lot of people will say the expected win is uh, five sticks of $1,000, something around uh, $830. Because they say, of right. course, I have a five in six chances of winning. And this is true mm -hmm. if you play Russian roulette once. Right. But if you play Russian roulette more than once, you will notice that soon the expected wins go to zero. And mm -hmm. the reason is because if you play Russian roulette a lot of time, the expected result is that you're dead. Right. And uh, that happens in a lot of um, situations in life where you take a small risk, mm -hmm. you're thinking maybe about what's the payoff of the risk, but people forget that if they take this risk more than once, and if they repeat it, very often, it won't matter what the payoff was. 
the only thing that matters is the accumulation of risk. And I see this um, with uh, reputational risks, uh, when you with people that break the law, with people who lie, um, and uh, therefore with with the relationships and uh, all kind of risks in which there is a chance that of uh, I call it game over, where you lose everything. Right. And sometimes mm-hmm. people think, oh, the cost of game over is just that um, it's just the cost of game over. For example, uh, if you lie to a friend, the cost is that you lose that friend. Right. But actually, the cost is much higher than that, is that you lose mm-hmm. all future gains that you could have had from that relationship. Or same mm-hmm. thing with the investment. If you invest in a stock, that, in an investment that has five, of, five out of six chances of bringing you a lot of money and one of six chances of going to zero, right. if you lose, you don't just lose the, let's say, the $1,000 you invested, but you lose all the future in returns that investing that $1,000 somewhere else could have brought you. Well, I, I like the idea of playing a game where there is no zero as an opportunity, well, well as, a, as a risk down the road. And in investing, when we buy individual stocks, to simplify my thinking, I have a no zero policy. So I don't buy a single stock that I can imagine at that point in time that it could go to zero. And you can list a number of things that can get you to that zero. And if you eliminate those, I think it raises, it elevates the whole research process and you just don't look at certain ideas. Can those ideas go up a hundred times because they're near bankruptcy or they're almost failed businesses? Of course they can. So you're, look, you're giving up a lot of that upside. But not having that zero is, is the main thing that I focus on. But the future gains, I think that's something that really spoke to me because this is the invisible loss here. Right? Because this is something that you don't see. You have to think about it and you say you lost a friend. So you lost all the future trips, all the future dinners, all the future benefits of having that friend in your life. And the same applies to everything else in our life. The reason I think you know Russian roulette is used as an example, it's such an extreme gamble, right? Because when you really think about it, the, the outcome can be not that you lost money, but you lost your life. But in career, in investing, sometimes the losses, it's not the life or death kind of situation, but it's a loss that you cannot recover from and uh, in many different ways, whether it's reputation, whether it's a relationship and, and so on. So I thought it was really interesting to think of the games that we play. Of what's the real downside here? The other quote that I really liked in your book was about envy. And I was rereading some all the letters, all the notes from uh, shareholder meetings, Buffett's meetings, and he talks about envy, how envy is, <laughs> is one of those scents that bring the least uh, joy. And I think there's this idea that the, the markets are driven not really by greed, but by envy. The neighbor is getting richer faster than you. And you have some thoughts about envy, and you say, do not envy success that doesn't reproduce well. Can you talk more about it? I thought it was really eye-opening. And I think if we had less envy in the world, it would be a nicer place to live in. Yes, a lot of time we envy people who just got lucky. And we don't realize mm-hmm. that maybe in 10 parallel universes, those people with the choices that they make, they end up well in one universe and very badly in other nine universes. But here we only see the one where they're lucky and we think, oh, I wish I took the same, like I were there as well. But mm-hmm. we should not compare ourselves with someone in this universe, we should ask ourselves, what would his life have been in 10 parallel universes 
if lucky con- the luck component went differently and do mm-hmm. I want that? And uh, right. to me, a numerical example, because usually people don't get, people usually they are like, yes, of course, luck is, has some part in our lives, but we underestimate it. So let's make an example with some number to show just how important luck is. And mm-hmm. I usually take the example of Elon Musk. Elon Musk, one of the wealthiest people on earth, extremely skilled entrepreneur. The right. question is, right now, I think I checked around recently, he's worth like two, 230 billions. Mm-hmm. How much of his wealth is due to luck? And usually a lot of people say, oh, very little because he's extremely capable, very hardworking. But I, I disagree. Like, I agree that he's very capable and hardworking. But the point is, right. if you take 10 parallel universes in which Musk mm-hmm. has the same upbringing, same initial conditions, funds his first company and sells it, and then we check what happens in 10 parallel universes from there. Probably mm-hmm. in all of these universes, he's still very wealthy. In some, mm-hmm. he's a billionaire. In some, he has 10 billion, 50 billion. Maybe in some universes, he only has uh, some millions, but still good outcomes, let's say. But then you take the average, and maybe the average across these 10 universes, his wealth is 23 billion, let's say. Mm -hmm. Still extremely skilled, extremely wealthy. But this average 23 billion is one-tenth of his wealth Mm -hmm. today, which would would imply that 90% of his wealth is due to luck. And that is true without taking anything from his accomplishment or from his kids. Right. So this, is, this was just a thought experiment to show how important luck is. And, uh, and uh, being lucky, saying that someone got lucky, doesn't take away from his skill, but not, not mm-hmm. necessarily. And then a second example that I, made, that I always make is I often go to high school uh, reunions. And one thing I've noticed from high school reunions is that there is always one person who's richer than me. And then there is always one person who's like super fit. And then there is one person right. which has a, um, a stunning, beautiful wife. And then there is another mm-hmm. one who's as full of friends. And then there is another one who has so much free time and uh, everything. But the thing I've noticed is that it's never the same person. Right. And instead, I always go out of high club reunions very happy. Because I noticed that I have most of it on all the dimensions. I have, uh, I, I'm, I have a good income. I have, uh, a life that, uh, a life that I love. My, I, I am relatively fit, not super fit, but, but healthy. Uh, I have, uh, a very beautiful wife that I love very much. I have, uh, good friends that I like and everything else. Mm-hmm. The point is, my life is wonderful. And if I compare myself with my classmates across the overall of my life, I am very happy. Right. But if instead I cherry pick, I would, if I cherry picked every single aspect from the other <laughs> people, I would go out depressed. Right. And the uh-huh. point is, it doesn't make sense to cherry pick. You will always mm-hmm. want to compare your whole life. Yes. And if you, once you start noticing this, that you cannot cherry pick one spot point of one's life, but you want to to check everything, suddenly your mm-hmm. envy levels will go down a lot. You will envy very much fewer people, if none at all, even. I like the idea of, well, let's say that you like somebody's car and 
you think, I, I wish I had that one. Yeah. Well, you have to take it all. So if somebody's making very, very high lease payments on that car just to keep it, you would have to take that on. Or if it was a gift from a parent that feels bad that they missed your birthday and you don't really feel loved by them, well, you would have to take that energetic emotional charge that comes with a gift. And I think envy is such a tricky uh, emotion for people. And I think it drives us in very strange directions, including the markets. And I see that, you know, the bird markets are hard because the stocks are down. But I think it's the bull markets that are the hardest for a lot of people because you see other people get richer faster than you. And when you really pause and think about it, you would realize it's, it makes no difference to your life as long as you are accomplishing the goals that you set for yourself. It doesn't matter that your friend bought something that went up a hundred times. But we're humans and we look at the, the, the neighbor and, and actually the closer that that comp is the person you compare yourself with, the more emotional charge there is to it, right? If it's a stranger that bought a car, it's fine. But if it's your cousin that went to the same school and has the same experience, got that car and you don't have it, then it hurts more. I don't know. I think the envy is a fascinating area of study. So if you have some books, we can talk more about envy, but I think it drives the markets. There, there, there are more great quotes in your book. You talk about averages and we touched on it. It's really powerful to think about it, how you know we are individuals in a bigger society, in a bigger environment. And you say, as an individual, you do not care whether the system works on average. You care if it works for you. And you say that averages might hide local spikes in irrever irreversibility. Can you talk more about it? And you have some good examples in the book, but I, I think it really opened my eyes to a whole different you know, layer of complexity here. Yes, on the book I make two examples. One uh, had to do with the COVID pandemic. And right. in Italy, like I'm Italian, and in Italy at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember in northern Italy, in Bergamo, there was a really bad situation. The hospital was overwhelmed. They couldn't accept patients. Tons of people died. And yet, if you check the numbers, in those days, very, very few beds, hospital beds in Italy were occupied by uh, um, COVID patients. If you look mm -hmm. at the national averages, it seems like the healthcare system works perfectly. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't count. If you lived in Bergamo, you do not care about whether the national healthcare system was working well. You care about whether your local hospital was working well. Right. And uh, that's one of the problems when you look at the averages, they hide problems. And mm -hmm. uh, too often we design systems so that they run well on average. And of course, that is right. necessary, but we also want the system to work well on local issues mm -hmm. and when there are spikes. Mm -hmm. And that the second right. example I make is the one of um, a time that uh, I used to take a train to the airport or always takes a similar amount of time. Then one day the train is late. I miss my plane. Right. And uh, if you look about it, uh, the statistics, the train on average has a two minutes delay. But that doesn't matter the average. What matters is whether one time I got late enough that I miss my plane. Why? Because if another time the train is early, they don't give mm -hmm. me a second plane ticket. Mm -hmm. There is some source of irreversibility that if I'm too late, I miss my plane. And that source of irreversibility makes the average worthless. 
And so the lesson is, if you have a reversibility, you do not only care about the average, but you also want to care how close you get to the source of irreversibility. I like that. You know, it reminds me of my, my grandpa who loved fishing, and he would say that you can still drown in a lake that's a foot or two deep on average. Exactly. <laughs> Because that lake can have a spot, and all lakes do, that's a lot deeper. So as kids, we would know where not to go. But the average wouldn't save us. And I love the examples that you have. And there's something about trains, planes, and automobiles when you travel that I love when they show and they, they ask you if you're satisfied with the travel, if it was on time. Well, it just takes one train that's not on time and your trip goes south. So that's something really worth considering that the averages don't always show the full picture. Related to that, you talk about survival of the group, of the, the population and the survival of a member and that not all the members have to survive for the population to survive. And uh, you talk about employees at the firm and the society at large and so on, even the COVID pandemic. Can you talk more about it? I found it really interesting because at the end of the day, we're individuals in, in larger pools of people in various places. And at the end of the day, we want to survive. <laughs> and as uh, wonderful it is that the whole population continues, we want to be the ones that go on as well. Yes, exactly. Um The point I'm making is that uh, when you have um, a, a group of people, the outcomes of the group of people is not aligned necess uh, necessarily with the outcomes of the individual. I make an example. Right. In a company, um, for the company to work well, it needs to somehow uh, get rid of uh, its least performing employees. Right. But from the point of view of the employee, of course, you want to stay in the company. Same thing, uh, we have a natural selection in nature. From the point of view of the species, you want to have uh, the weakest of the less fit that leave the group. But from mm. the point of view of the, of the individuals, of course, you want to survive. And uh, the realization is that you cannot rely on society for your survival because the interests of society are, might not necessarily be aligned to you. Even not because right. society might be greedy, but because society cares about its members. Like the way in which the mm -hmm. society maximizes the survival of its members is by letting go the few uh, that are unfit. And once you internalize that, you realize that there is the saying, change is inevitable. Of course, but change can happen at different levels. It can happen on you, which is when society right. or your company gets rid of its least performing um, members, or it can happen mm -hmm. within you and you let go of the habits that uh, draw you back so that society or your company doesn't have to let go of you. And a lot of... Um, of adaptation is this is this is realizing that change is inevitable but it can happen on you or within you and if you manage to make it happen within you you will avoid for it to happen on you so the idea that if you have a certain habit that for example got you fired it's better to get rid of that habit than risk the chance of getting fired yes exactly that's how i hear it yeah and and i found it really interesting and uh, you say Well, you use this, the term ergodicity here that the, the lifetime outcomes of its participants 
either coincide with its population or they don't. And if they don't, as in the examples that you mentioned, I think we have to pay attention. That's, that's what I took away from it. Exactly. You talk about a barbell strategy, and I thought of it as an advice for life and managing those kinds of risks. And you recommend to invest your time and money as a barbell. Can you talk about that? I thought it was really intriguing and interesting way of thinking about risks. Yeah, so the barbell strategy is something that uh, is mentioned in Nassim Taleb's uh, uh, book Antifragile. And uh, the idea is that usually there are some strategies which are low risk, low return, medium risk, medium return, and high risk, high returns. Right. And we usually think that a mix of low risk, low returns, and high risk, high return is equivalent to just having mid risk, mid return. Mm -hmm. But that's very much not the case. Because with medium risk, medium return, there is still a risk of irreversible losses which absorb future gains very much. Right. Well, if you have a mix of low risk, low returns, and uh, a little bit of high risk, high returns, what happens mm -hmm. is that not only high risk, high returns, they tend to have a high return which is much, much higher than the medium return, but also... If they go bad, you still have a huge chunk of low risk, low return that provides stability and allows you to stay in the game and maybe making another small high risk, high return investment. And that applies to investing, but also applies to a lot of other things, such as um, how you spend your time. A uh, lot of people, um, they do part of their job in a way which is low risk, low return, I'm thinking about some people who do a lot of um, consulting or freelancing on the side, or maybe they're even employed. And then in they set amount, they set aside a some amount of time to take high risk, high return uh, ventures, let's say. And that allows them to have better averages over a long time because they can keep taking these high risk, high returns uh, investments over and over until they manage to gather their returns. To, to get the best of two worlds, one relatively safe and one potentially very unsafe, but at least if the irreversible consequences follow, it's a small portion of everything that you have, whether it's time or, or money. So I found it really interesting how you can have the two at the same time. I found another advice in your book that I think is both for um, money managers and anybody looking for somebody to manage money for them or evaluating a money manager. And you say, if you don't take extreme risks, even if you're the most skilled person, you will outperform, you will be outperformed by someone who did. And then you add that in general, taking small risks is a good strategy, which circles back to what we talked about. But when we look at somebody that had extreme, extreme outcomes, remember that they took on some extreme risks. Can you talk more about it? I thought it was really interesting because it goes back to the idea of you know, envy. Yes, uh, I make a, a thought experiment in the book and that's, let's imagine that you take 100 investors, each of them with different skill, but everything else is the same. They have the same connections, the same initial wealth, and so on. The only thing that changes is the skill. And then you observe the outcomes after 10 years. And of course, there would be some, some that got richer than others. Uh, in general, the higher the skill, the, the wealthier they are. But what you will notice 
is that the most killed investor is unlikely to be the wealthiest one. And usually the wealthiest one will be someone who was quite skilled, but not the most skilled. And the reason is because there is one person which is the most skilled one, and then there are 10 people which are very skilled. And out of those 10 people which are very skilled, probably there is one who got so lucky that they uh-huh. made enough money to go in front of the one who's the skillest one. So what? So this is shows that even if you are the most skilled person, there would be probably someone who's uh, more rich than you just because they got mm-hmm. luckier or because they took more risks. So first thing is, if you are not number one based on some leading indicators such as wealth, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are not the most skilled one. And then more importantly, if you try to take more risks so that you have a better shot at becoming number one, you mm-hmm. also lower your average outcomes. And this, I think, is very, very important because, of course, some people, maybe they want to be number one and they think I would never be satisfied unless I'm number one, but they need to be conscious that if they want to be number one, they need to take risks. And if they take risks, they will lower the distribution of results. So maybe out of mm-hmm. 100 parallel worlds, there is one scenario in which they become number one, but maybe there are also 30 scenarios in which uh, they lose their wealth or they lose their high, or they lose uh, their marriage or any way they don't end up. And the question is, is that the distribution of outcomes you are okay with? And usually the way to have the best distribution of outcomes is to take a little bit of risks, but not much. And especially not risks that you cannot recover from. Exactly. Emphasis on that. You know, it makes me think of in investing when we work with clients and we work with clients that inherited wealth and clients that created wealth in, in this lifetime and want this wealth to continue go on throughout their life and many generations. I realize that the best results happen anecdotally when they're more relaxed about the outcomes, where they're, when they're less in a rush. And when they see it's a wide range of outcomes that they would consider still a success, they don't have to be the richest person in the world. And it makes me think of a conversation that William Green, the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, you might know him, uh, had with Tom Gaynor from Markel, another you know, insurance company. He runs investments for them and more. And uh, the conversation was about uh, the Olympics, how when you look at the top three, and the difference is sometimes a fraction of a second if you're number one, number two, number three. And nobody remembers number four. And very few people remember number three. And in investing, the range of outcomes is wider. And I think you were talking about it when we talked about Elon Musk or, or Munger and, and Buffett. If Musk ends up with 25 billion or 250 billion, he ends up very rich, right? So the, it's a range, a much wider range of outcomes than a fraction of a penny or a fraction of a second that we see in many other pursuits. So either you are the fastest or it doesn't really matter that you chose to run in this competition. In investing, it's not like that. If you don't end up with 100 billion and you end up with just one single billion, don't cry. That, that would be my, that would be my, my thought exactly. here. What do you think? Exactly. And I've noticed that in general, like, that's, that's the point. Like, if you aim to be number one, you will have to take strategies that have a lot of risk. And there will be a lot of right. outcomes that you don't like. And if instead you are okay with being in the top 5%, 
you will notice mm-hmm. that you have much, much more reproducible strategies, which are lower risks right. and lead much more certainly to good outcomes. And mm-hmm. yeah. No, no, I, I like it. Do you, do you, are you familiar with the concept of obliquity as in achieving your goals in an indirect no. way? Tell me more. So you have to look up the book Obliquity. And uh, I was introduced uh, also on this podcast by somebody to this concept that in life, for example, you and I are talking and you say, I want to be happy. And uh, there are many philosophers that said that you can't achieve happiness in a direct way. You, you have to do all the other things that will, as a side effect, make you happy. You spend time with friends, you go on a nice walk, and then happiness sneaks up on you. And there are examples in business, companies that obsess about profits, maximizing profits. They actually undercut and they underinvest and they uh, squeeze the customer and the customer is not as loyal and so on and so on. The side effect is that the, the end result is that they might not actually maximize the profit, but the company that So it's the goal of making the customer as happy as possible might be actually the one that indirect way, in an indirect way, reaches a higher profitability level than the one that obsesses with profit. And there are examples after examples in in life, in relationships, where we actually achieve something in an indirect way. And I I find it really interesting how in investing, sometimes to reach the number one position, it's not about obsessing about the number one position, but putting in place a plan that, for example, eliminates or minimizes situations where you could have irreversible consequences. <laughs> so you stay in the game, as you said, with average results long enough that you do become number one. But don't obsess about being number one because that can get you in too many risky situations too early. That's how I thought about it. So uh, there are a couple of other ideas that I like in your book. And uh, one of them is you talk about narrowing the time frame. And I, I really like to explore that idea because in investing, you know, these days people get measured by monthly performance. And sometimes even I hear conversations where people ask about the first half of the month versus the second half of the month. And it's really meaningless in the long-term investment horizon, uh, how anybody's doing week to week. But you say that the easiest way to increase performance is to narrow the time frame over which it is measured. Sadly, it's also the easiest way to produce unsustainable performance. I wish everybody had this uh, written hanging over their desks in all the investment firms. <laughs> Tell me more. Yes, very often when uh, people try to increase performance or increase efficiency, what they do is that they start taking shortcuts which increase efficiency or performance in the short term, but decrease it in the long term. And that happens, for example, when... Uh, we say uh, we overpromise or we say a lie, in which case maybe we make one sale more in the short term, but then we destroy the trust uh, and therefore we also destroy the long-term results. Another example is when we forget about maintenance, training, clarity, and all those things which seem inefficient if we measure returns over the next month, over the next quarter, but instead are necessary to achieve long-term results. And so my advice is, whenever you try to increase efficiency, yes, remove the unnecessary, but only remove what is unnecessary for the long term. Don't remove what's unnecessary in the short term, but necessary for the long term. I think a lot of sales teams could learn from this, because if you have a goal of monthly sales, you might be inclined to cut some corners, push the product a bit more, maybe even and all of that can come at the, the quality of the service. 
just to meet a sales quota. But if you're thinking in terms of long-term benefit and long-term results, it's a very different mindset. And I think in the investing world, nowadays you can measure performance day to day, every day. And it's very tempting to try to evaluate a portfolio manager in a very short period of time. But then that portfolio manager starts to operate in a different way to look very good month to month, week to week. I've even participated in conversations when somebody was asking how come the first half of the month the performance was this and then the second half of the month the performance was that. And that's that's a ludicrous question when you're holding businesses for at least you know three, five years. But I think there's a lesson there. We've been talking a lot about ergodicity. And I'm curious because in your book you say that there are times when actually non-ergodicity is a positive thing. And you talk about learning, relationships, skin in the game. And I know you have some examples in the book. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, so we saw when uh, the lack of ergodicity causes irreversible losses that absorb future gains. Right. So from that we could think that what's irreversible is negative. But there is also plenty of irreversible which is positive, such mm -hmm. as learning. And in the book, I make the example of baking cakes. If you take 10 people and you ask them to bake one cake each, you will probably end up with 10 bad cakes. Right. <laughs> but if you ask one person to, to bake 10 cakes, you will probably end up with a few bad cakes at the beginning and a few good cakes at the end. And mm -hmm. the reason is because uh, the person learns. And in this case, learning is something that you do not measure, you do not notice, and it's not important when you look at the short time interval. If you only measure one cake, learning doesn't, doesn't show up in any measurements. Mm -hmm. But instead, if you measure a long time frame, learning is basically the only thing that matters. And uh, this is an invitation about looking at positive um, irreversibility and, uh, look, and to look for it we need to consider longer time frames because it will not show up in shorter times. And I think that happens quite a bit in our life. And I'm thinking of compounding of knowledge, right? You can read the same book a hundred times or you can read a hundred books. Obviously, we know that the result is very different, the knowledge you will acquire, and then the ideas that will come because of the ideas you acquired in the process. And it's the moment where actually non-ergodicity can help us. Exactly. You... And uh, just, just on this, on the book, I make another point which could be very useful for managers, in which I say that behavioral change requires uh, this compounding. And I make the example that as a manager, you can remind your people of what the right behavior is once per month mm -hmm. for your whole career, and the, and the behavior of your people will not change. Or for one month, you can remind them every day, multiple times per day, and that will create the critical mass that will cause the, their behavior to shift. And uh, if you remind them for once a, well, once a day, every month, maybe you will, get, you will create an everlasting habit and you will not have to remind them for the rest of your career. I like that. You know, it makes me think nowadays you can find summaries of books and the essence of the book is on one page. And, and I enjoy that. I think it introduces me to more books. But if I really want the wisdom of that book to become part of me, I feel like I have to invest the few hours and read all 300, 400 pages so that through the repetition of examples in the book, whatever the ideas are, they can become part of my thinking. So it's not just that, oh, I know the essence is this one sentence, for example, you know, benefit of saving. 
I can tell you that in two seconds. But actually reading a book with many examples, I think that's how our mind actually has a chance to make it part of who we are and acquire that knowledge and lesson, let it stick. You touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper. The two definitions of efficiency and effectiveness. And you say that one is a snapshot in time and the, the latter describes a lifetime. Can you talk about that? I think a lot of you know, how we operate businesses, how we invest, how we live our life, we are bouncing back and forth between efficiency and effectiveness. I'm curious to hear more. Yes, the problem when we measure efficiency is that we very often look at it as a snapshot of time. We look, what do we need now? And everything that we don't need, we say that it's a waste, mm -hmm. a source of inefficiency. Right. But the question instead is, what do we need over a lifetime? Or what do we need over a career? For example, rest. Within a measure, rest is something which is inefficient if we measure performance over a workday or over a work week. Right. But instead, it's necessary to keep performing for a whole career. Mm -hmm. And uh, such is, um, again, learning, building trust, relationships, and all those things. So my invitation is to focus a little bit less over efficiency and a little bit more over effectiveness, over impact achieved over, um, maybe not necessarily over a career or a lifetime, but maybe over a decade or at least uh, over a few years. And uh, you will notice that plenty of things that are unnecessary to achieve uh, performance over one day are actually necessary to sustain performance for a few years and to reach the kind of impact that you can only achieve over a few years. How does the saying go that we underestimate what we can do in a year and we overestimate what we can do in a day? Is that how it goes? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the same, we, are, we um, overestimate what we need in one day and we underestimate what we need for a few years. Right. Somehow that's, that's worth considering. You and I briefly talked about the different measures that people use and how once you start measuring something, whether it's school or tests or results or at work, people will try to game it and get to them the result that, that's desired. Can you talk about that idea? I feel like it's very tricky because the more we can measure, and with technology, I think we have so many more ways to measure. I mean, we have smart watches that can measure all kinds of feedback. And, and I mean, I think in the future, even th more things will be measured. We can get lost in how much we can measure. But how, how do we use those measures in the right way, the metrics, so we don't get corrupted by, by them? Exactly. This is a concept uh, that goes by the name of good hearts law, mm -hmm. which says that what gets measured eventually gets gamed. And uh, usually I hear a lot of companies whose antidote to this problem is to set antagonistic metrics. Right. They're, they're, they're saying something like, I give you one metric and then I give you another metric that goes in the opposite direction so that you cannot game, in, uh, game one without causing the other one to decrease. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't like this approach very much because just as people can game one metric, they can game two. Right. What I find much more useful is you give your people one metric, the one that you want them to increase, that maybe relates the most with uh, performance, and then you give them boundaries. Mm -hmm. Like, don't take shortcuts. Or for example, you need to achieve that quota in sales, but you cannot do anything which tarnishes the brand of the company. Or some, something qualitative like that, it's much harder to game. 
and uh, it will make uh, make much more likely that the person will focus on good way to maximize the metric without trying to gain it. It's it's a fascinating concept, and I might have shared with you that. I wrote an article about success and failure, and I was toying with the definitions that we use. And I said, let's, for the sake of the argument, call success becoming the richest person in the world and failure becoming a, a homeless person. And the argument I was making, when you really think about it, the lack of one doesn't mean the other, right? So just because you haven't become yet the richest person in the world, it doesn't mean you're homeless. And just because you haven't become homeless doesn't mean that you're the richest person in the world, that it's a range of outcomes. And the lesson that I had for myself writing this article was that there are certain investing decisions that can end with a game over, which is the essence of your book. And sometimes on your way to becoming the richest person in the world, you might actually end up homeless because of the risks that you accept. And what came to me right this minute talking to you, there was a story of a Brazilian billionaire, uh, Ike Batista, I think was his name. And he was going on TV and saying how within a year or two, he will become the richest person in the world. And he, he was among the richest at the time, using a lot of leverage in, in a very aggressive way and building an empire in Brazil in many different businesses. And then things slow down and that leverage work against him. And he had a negative net worth in the following year because he lost more than he had. And what that experience showed me was that you can lose money at a pace, at a speed that's uh, unimaginable, unthinkable. And for him, it was a total game over, I think, with you know criminal proceedings. I don't know if he ended up in jail, but if you can think of a game over, financially speaking, I think this is one of them. And yeah, just, just the thought about how to think about it. Tell me more about leading indicators. You mentioned in the book how they might be, you were talking about lagging and leading indicators. Can you tell the difference, explain the difference, and then explain how using one or the other can help businesses perform? Yes, uh, there are many metrics, and one way to classify them is leading indicators and lagging indicators. Lagging indicators are the ones that measure the past. For example, revenue. When we check revenue, we are looking at the past, how good the product was, how good the sales were, and so on. And then there are leading indicators, which instead estimate the future. And these are things such as what's the trust in the, in the brand, um, how good are our salespeople, how much training are we doing, and so on. And lacking indicators, of course, you need to measure them because you want to know how the company is going, mm -hmm. but you cannot rely on them only. If you only measure lagging indicators, you will forget about the fundamentals for success. And uh, at some point, your lagging indicator will plateau and then they will start decrease. Mm -hmm. Instead, you need to measure both lacking indicators and leading indicators. Leading, uh, again, the leading indicators could be whether you're training your people, whether you're taking shortcuts, um, how many uh, quality incidents you have, how many ethical incidents you have, uh, all those things that describe how solid your fundamentals are. And if you start measuring the leading indicators, you will pay more attention to the fundamentals over which your success can build. And uh, these are things that you do not notice immediately but eventually they always show up in your lagging indicators after a while. 
This is particularly important when you compare yourself to competitors. Usually when we compare to competitors, we look at lagging indicators. Ah, that person is, that person is richer than me. Ah, that company has more sales. Mm-hmm. But it's important to also compare the leading indicators because if a company looks like they have more sales than me, but you also see that they are cutting corners, whereas yourself, you're not cutting corners, maybe right now it looks like you're behind but probably in a few years, uh, you will get ahead. So always look at leading and lagging indicators when you're comparing yourself to someone else. So I'm immediately thinking about remote work. And during COVID, a lot of us tried it. Some of us are still working remotely or in a hybrid way. And I know that you wrote a book about it. And I'm curious because uh, I talked to friends in various companies. And I think the bigger the company, the more they want to measure and figure out the performance, the productivity of employees. And they have very sophisticated software these days that goes beyond the mouse uh, movement or the, the green light indicator of you know, engagement with, with the software. And then they, they produce reports and then they try to evaluate if the person is, I wouldn't say even productive, but maybe active as <laughs> an doesn't actually mean that the outcome is coming. Can you uh, talk about how, how do you measure productivity in this new world where more of us, I think, in the future will be working remotely without a supervisor looking over our shoulder every five minutes? It's a different world that we're living in. Yeah, I really don't like this, uh, uh, this, this software and this way of measuring it. Because if you as a manager, you need to rely on software installed on your subordinate's computer to know whether he's productive, then you're a terrible manager. You should be able to know whether your people have the competencies required by talking to them. And one way to do that is, for example, asking them to guide you through what their work or what one of their tasks, um, how they work on, on their tasks. And just from that conversation above, it should be evident whether they have the, the skill And then assuming that they have the skill, measuring productivity should not be on a second by second basis using some mass checking software, but it should just be on whether they deliver the work that they're supposed to deliver. Mm -hmm. And uh, for example, I heard about some stories about remote employees who have uh, multiple jobs. And I think that that points very much toward uh, managerial failure. Uh, I mean, of course, it's unethical from the point of view of the employee. Right. But also the manager should be able to know whether one employee is having multiple jobs. It should be apparent and clear. So I would encourage managers of remote team to have more conversations. Uh, digital tools are great, but you can, but you should, shouldn't rely on them. Instead, you should do things that do not scale, such as conversations. It's the only way where you can reliably use a multitude of signals, including, for example, body language and voice of tone to know whether the employee, for example, has doubts, uh, whether they're doing their job well, whether they're hiding problems and so on. That's true. I'm very curious where it goes, but I think it's an interesting challenge for businesses to manage people. And I remember having a conversation with a CEO of a company we were investing at the time. And uh, the question that came up was his most valuable asset. And he said, my most valuable asset leaves the office at five o'clock. And I thought that's... That's a beautiful way to put it because it's an asset that you don't see on the balance sheet. It's not an asset that you think, you know, it's it's the talent, it's the people, it's their commitment, it's their drive. It's a lot of very intangible things. It's not the headcount. 
you can add another thousand employees. We've seen it happen. And it's, it's more about the engagement and how people deliver the work. And I think, as you said, the measurements that we have in place maybe are not showing the true picture just because somebody's at the computer doing something. They might not be delivering what's expected of them. But I think the other side of it, and I've seen many studies, how people are less engaged in the work that they do. And I think uh, combining the two, how do you keep them engaged? How do you measure them properly? And how do you keep them interested in the work that they do? I think it's all, all whoever is going to be good at it, I think will win this competitive game of, of business going forward. Luca, uh, last question I have for you, which I really enjoy asking is about the definition of success. How do you think about success? And how do you look at it? Is it a destination? Is it a journey? And I know you touched on it throughout the conversation a little bit, but tell me more. So my definition of success is uh, that I'm happy mm-hmm. and that I'm happy through time, mm-hmm. which means, which means uh, I'm uh, both happy now, like not necessarily all moments in the day, but most days, most of my day, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And that, that it's a kind of hap- like that I achieve that happiness in a way that allows me to sustain happiness. Because there are a lot of ways to be happy today but that have externalities that makes it more and more difficult to be happy uh, when I'm uh, 80 years old or 90 years old, for example. Instead, I'm looking at a healthy way to be happy, ways that I can sustain through time. And then uh, this idea of extended happiness through time, it's also extended across areas of my life mm. because it's relatively easy to be happy at work, relatively easy to be happy with your friends, or with uh, your family, but if you only focus on one, you will take shortcuts that endanger the other ones. And maybe you can sustain that for a few months, a few years, but eventually it will come, um, you will, you will feel it negatively. And so for me, happiness has to be across areas of my life. I need to be happy at my work, happy uh, with my family, happy with my, just by myself, help, uh, and so on. I might have mentioned to you the book Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. And he shares the story of an ant and a grasshopper. And we all know the the tale how the ant is working really hard collecting the food until the winter comes and the grasshopper jumps around. And when the winter comes, he's in trouble. And the lesson I took away from this book is what you say, which is to enjoy the now and the future and make decisions that can optimize the happiness or fulfillment throughout time. And I don't think it's an extreme choice between being an ant that never has fun and a grasshopper that always has fun. (laughs) I think there might be a place in between where you can have your working and making contribution, but also enjoying the ride. And I'm also thinking how some things are not worth saving until you're 80. If you want to go scuba diving or surfing or bungee jumping, maybe do it sooner and, and don't wait until later to do it. But I think... Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You should be able to do a part of both. So part of the time should be dedicated to enjoying now. Part of the time should be dedicated to make sure that you can enjoy later. There is no contradiction between doing a bit and a bit. Mm-hmm. And the problem with just optimizing for retirement, for example, just doing that, problem is that you, you don't have the guarantee that you can reach there. There can always be incidents or health issues that prevent and if you want to avoid regrets, I've, so I think that one of the best strategies to 
live your life in a way that you will not have regrets, neither whether you die tomorrow, neither whether you die in 20 years or whether you die at 90 years old. I agree. I like the sound of that. Luca, one last thing. After people, after the audience is done with your book, Ergodicity, which ones are the books you would recommend for them to read next? Because you wrote quite a few. Yes. So if they are interested in uh, management, uh, I have a book which is called The Best Practices for Operational Excellence. And if instead they're interested in psychology and human behavior, I would recommend my book, Decontrol Heuristic. Perfect. I'm going to include the links to all your resources in the notes so the audience can go and explore and find out more about your books. I love the way you write. I feel like you introduce very complex ideas in a way that's very relatable and I could immediately see how I can deploy it in, in my life. And I think it gave me a framework and vocabulary for certain things that I was noticing. But now after reading your book, I feel like I, I have a very clear idea of why certain things work why certain things don't work and how we can manage it better. Luca, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And I hope to have you back on the show and talk about the other books at some point as well. Gladly. And thank you again for inviting me. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov. 